you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. as it was written long ago, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. What is up everybody? This is your boy Rob Clark. This is episode number 67, The Ballad of Larry Crayford. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. And also a special thank you to everyone out there who continues to support the show, both with your numbers and your dollars. I appreciate it. I appreciate it more than you will ever know. And if you out there haven't been able to do so yet, Please feel free to head over to tlgpodcast.com and click on the donate button. Hit your boy up, give me a little something, a cup of coffee, you know, help your brother out, help a brother out. Um, you can also shop through my Amazon link. If you buy anything online on Amazon, just go through my portal and it'll help the show out. Same thing with my vape store link there. If you're into vaping and you want to buy some vape stuff, go through my link. It'll help out the show. You don't have to actually give me money per se. Uh, but Amazon and VaporHub will reward me for sending you there to spend your money at Amazon and VaporHub. So that's a good way to support the show, or you can just donate directly on my PayPal link. It would be greatly appreciated. Any money that I get will go directly back into the show, I promise, because I want it to be as good as it can. You know, I went back and I listened to, like, you know, the first couple episodes, and, uh, God, oh, God, I'm begging you, please don't. Uh, the contrast in a year is amazing of how awful <laughs> how awful my show was and sounded as compared to a year later I mean this this show has gone through some changes in a year but damn man I, it, it makes me cringe when I go back and listen so please please don't I, I, I'll, I'll touch on some of that other stuff in future future shows I promise you there's no need to go back to the first or second or third shows uh, to check anything out because it is cringeworthy um, 
I was a neophyte. I didn't know what I was doing yet. So please, please, please. Oh, but anyway, hope everybody out there is having a great day today. I definitely am. Uh, and I will apologize ahead of time if, if you are, are sensing any background noise. Um, I just got air conditioning fixed in my work truck, which I'm sitting in right now. Enjoying the cold coolness of my air conditioner. I have not had air conditioning so far this year while I'm working and driving all day. And uh, so, yeah, no more swamp nuts. Uh, I'm sitting here with dry thighs happily and uh, getting to do one of my favorite things in the world. And that's talk to you about the JFK assassination. And uh, the little snippet you heard at the beginning from JFK is uh, it's from his American University speech. Um... And a buddy of mine, Will, thought it would be appropriate for what we're going to be talking about today, and he is right. Um, Will's a friend of mine, and if you'd like to give him a follow, at JFK Prime Source on Twitter, feel free. Um, he, he, he's one of these uh, researchers that likes to work from the primary source documents. And he's, getting some, uh, he's doing some big things over there, trying to get a website up and ready and rolling. And also... Check out my buddy Carmine over at tpac.com, T-P-A-A-K.com. Uh, you can find a link to his site on tlgpodcast.com. Uh, you can find a link to my buddy Chuck O'Chelly's show on tlgpodcast.com as well. He is over at ucy.tv backslash TOE for the time being. I hear he's moving, but I believe he's still over at UCY. Also, Check out my buddy Doug Campbell's show, The Dallas Action, which you can find on Spreaker, and you can find him on Facebook and uh, and on Stitcher, and uh, go show him some love. He's doing some good things over there. He's had some really great shows here recently, so go give it a listen. Now, this week, today, this show is late. I know. I know it is. I know. I know. I know. And I appreciate everybody wondering where the hell is the show. Well... The problem arose, okay, I had this show done and in the can, beamed up to satellite, getting ready to go down directly to your ears, people, okay? But, like most people, you know, if after I talk about something, you know, I continue to dig. That's not the end of the road for me once I talk about it on this show. No, 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 no. I continue to dig and dig. And I found something, some other information out about Larry Crayford that I think is imperatively important. And I will illustrate to you in this show how research can become perverted over the years when it gets passed from researcher to researcher to researcher. And nobody bothers to go back and find out where the first guy got it and see if he got it right. You know, you could have Mark Lane saying something in the 60s that Penn Jones picks up on and reiterates in the 70s, and then Jim Mars picks it up in the 80s and reiterates it in, in the 80s, and then it goes on to the 90s, and then it's on the internet, and 20,000 people are reiterating it. But when you go back and look, it's totally, totally not true. So, in this show, I'd like to be as accurate as possible. So, I just held the first show back until I could do it again, which is today. Um because I want to give you the most accurate information possible. And I will do that whenever is needed, you know, because I don't want to be known as a proprietor of false information. Um, a lot of this show is speculation. A lot of this show, you know, 
does, but it does come from primary documents, stuff that you can go back and say, okay, look, you know, this is what this guy said on this date to this person. This is this guy's Warren Commission testimony. You know, this is the FBI report. This is a declassified CIA document that says this. Okay, then we can speculate as to what it all means. And there will be some speculating at the end of the show when I tell you and lay it all out for you how I believe that Larry Crayford was the killer of J.D. Tippett. But before we get there, okay, I just want to tell you a little bit about who Larry Crayford is, where he comes from, what his backstory is, and how we get there to November 22nd, 1963. Now, Crayford was born um, in 1941. He dropped out of high school at the age of 17 and joined the Army. He received an early discharge from the Army in 1959. No, I'm not talking about Lee Oswald. No, no. This is Larry Crayford, okay? I know their stories are really similar, really close. Uh... <laughs> but this is Larry Crayford. Okay. Now Larry Crayford was stationed in Germany at the same time, of course, that Edwin Walker was the general in charge of Germany. Okay. When he was propagandizing uh, a lot of his uh, soldiers over there in Germany. Now, <sighs> Larry Crayford has managed to evade a lot of in his life he's a runner he, he he doesn't like to stay in one place very long okay now Crayford's name he, ch he actually changed his name in 1960 by one letter it used to be Crayford C-A-R-F-O-R-D he changed it in 1960 to C-A-R or C-R-A-F-A-R-D sorry um and there's a reason he did that in 1960, but we'll get there, okay? Now, so we have Larry getting a early, a general discharge under honorable circumstances in 1959. Whatever the hell that means, okay? It's possibly medical. I don't, I'm not for certain. Um, and the reason I'm not for certain is because he didn't tell the Warren Commission about it. So, I mean, he really didn't go into much detail about it other than just what I just told you. Um, now, Larry, upon returning and getting out of the Army, um, fell in with some bad dudes there around San Francisco. And come to find out, he was actually working for... Uh, one of the, uh, I guess, mafia. I don't know what they called him in San Francisco, but, you know, they called him a Don. Whatever the hell that means. I guess a mafia Don. Um, as a hitman. Okay. <laughs> and he told researcher Peter Whitney this. And uh, he had correspondence with him from, like, the late 80s uh, all through the 90s. You know, where he, uh, he talked to this guy, corresponded with him. He actually visited with him one time in Oregon. Um, 
and I believe Larry has since passed away. I think he, I believe he passed away back in 2013. Um, I'm not sure on that because there's not a lot out there on him. Um, now after, after the Jack Ruby trial, Earl Ruby, Jack Ruby's brother, um, reached out to Larry at the trial and offered him a job in Michigan working for him in a dry cleaner place which Larry accepted and uh, he stayed up there for like six months and then one day Earl Ruby fired him and told him to get lost um, some people speculate it's because Earl wanted to really know the skinny about what the hell Jack Ruby was doing down there in Dallas and uh, maybe you know Earl was schmoozing him for, for a couple months there hoping that, hoping that Larry would come off with some information but maybe never did and got tired of him being around and said alright get the hell out of here um, but you know Larry was a I don't want to say a drifter but he really he didn't hold a job for long I mean if you read his Warren Commission testimony he'd be like what the hell was this guy doing he would go from job to job on a weekly basis. You know, I don't think he had a job for more than a month at a time for years. Um, now, back to the reason he had to change his name, because uh, when the, this mafia don he was working for as a hitman found out that Crayford, who was a big ladies' man, uh, knocked his uh, his either his daughter or his granddaughter up, got her pregnant. And uh, instead of the usual treatment, they had uh, because Larry had been a good soldier, he told Larry that uh, he needed to either leave or die. So Crayford left and changed his name. He added an A where there was an O. Okay? And he started living very much so off the grid. You know, uh, his... His biography, you know, says, oh, yeah, he went to California in 1961 where he he worked for the uh, Royal Golden Gate Carnival or something or another, traveling carnival. Um, But what it leaves out is what he told the Warren Commission. You know, he he would be like, he worked his way down through California working at these various jobs, um, I think like he said one week he worked for a Chinese guy picking strawberries and then he moved on and then he worked at some amusement ride for a week and then he moved on and he had four or five jobs on his way down until he finally got to Los Angeles and uh, joined this uh, Royal Royal Golden Gate traveling carnival and it gets kind of confusing in the Warren Commission uh, because it's Larry's parents lived in Dallas, Oregon. And of course, every, all these events happened in Dallas, Texas. So there's a lot of, it's seemingly confusing, you know, when you hear Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. And, and you know, they'll ask him, so this was Oregon or Texas? Oregon or Texas? Oregon or Texas? Back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I think it was in 1961 where he married a girl he had met from Texas. I don't know how he met her. Um, but he convinced her to come up and visit him in in, in Oregon, and uh, everything was going okay. He thought, and uh, he'd gotten this girl pregnant. And one day he came home from work, and she left. She left with his baby, and uh, that was that. 
and then uh, you know a little a couple months later you know they reconciled I guess I think she had moved back to Texas or something and then he convinced her to come back to Oregon and then he ended up marrying the girl and then uh, he said it didn't work out so then he left he left her at his parents house you know with his baby and he just he just left and she stayed there for couple months I think before she could make her way back down to to Dallas now somehow Larry ends up in Dallas working at the Texas State Fair on the carnival grounds there and uh, meets Jack Ruby now Jack Ruby has a financial interest in in one of the tents there Uh, whatever is going on there at one of these tents he's got a financial interest in it and these guys who were running the tent of course Jack knew him and Larry was there one day and Larry says about a week later you know that whatever business was in that tent you know things weren't going good so they, they shut it down and then somebody else bought the tent and put in like a band and some girls dancing or whatever and Jack had uh, had a financial interest in that as well and, you know he supplied some of his girls to dance in the tent you know to this band music but it didn't really do nothing there either so they ended up closing that too so Jack being the nice guy that he is offers Larry a job at the carousel club working for him you know basically hey man how would you like to come work for me I won't pay you anything you can sleep in a closet and you do whatever I tell you to do does that sound good to you okay good let's shake on it buddy let's go So, apparently this appealed to Larry, okay, and, uh, you know, Jack, Jack gave this guy all kinds of responsibility, like, he put his trust in this dude, like, this guy he had just met that he'd never known before, you know, all these responsibilities, now, you gotta remember, from the time he met Jack Ruby in early October, until he left town November 23rd, Larry Crayford worked for Jack Ruby for about a month and a half. Okay, that's it. But in this month and a half period of time, okay, Jack Ruby would bestow upon Larry Crayford a lot of responsibility. A lot. Uh, he was responsible for answering the phones during the day at the Carousel Club. He was responsible for cleaning up, you know, the cigarette butts and the empty beer bottles and, and you know, peanut shells and cum stains or or whatever you know was left in the club from the night before and uh not only that he would he would take jack ruby trusted him with his dogs and we all know how much jack ruby loves his dogs uh he trusted larry crayford to feed his dogs um he trusted him to make deposits he trusted him there alone around all that alcohol he trusted him there alone with money in the till you know he trusted him enough to actually run the Vegas club, his sister Eva's club, when she wasn't there and Jack was busy. Larry Crayford, they put this man in charge of the Vegas club at least two nights that I know of in that short month and a half period of time. So, Jack must have really, really trusted Larry Crayford. And Larry Crayford must have been a trustworthy fellow, you know. Uh... (laughs) Or was there more to the story? Now, 
you know, Larry seems like the kind of guy who would uh, take advantage of people. You know, he didn't take no shit off anybody. Larry Crayford didn't. And uh, if he had a problem with you, he'd let you know about it. You know, he wasn't one of these quiet Oswald types. I mean, this guy was a real dick. A real dick. He was a womanizer. Uh, he drank. You know, he he was a dick. He thought he was a shit. You know, he was this hot shot from the army, you know. And, uh, but real horrible in his personal life, you know. Uh, he was, he, he, t- he told the Warren Commission about all, you know, all these girls he was running through and, uh, and this, that, and the other. And he might have got this girl pregnant, got that girl pregnant, had to move because he got a girl pregnant. You know, all this crazy stuff. Now, some people say, well, Larry Crayford don't look nothing like Oswald. Well, maybe not if he, uh, you know, if he smiles. Because apparently Larry Crayford had some jacked up teeth. You know, what few teeth he did have was jacked up. Um, he was actually missing his two front teeth. And apparently this is hap- this had happened when he was in the Army. Because he had a scar on his cheek. He was missing his front teeth. Um, just a rough looking dude, but if you were looking at him, you know, at like just as a dude standing there stoically, you know, not smiling, um, he does bear a resemblance to Lee Oswald, you know, at a glance, uh, you know, or from a distance. He does. He just does. Even Ruth Payne acknowledged that the dude was a dead ringer for Oswald, you know, so much so that it gave her a very bad feeling the first time she saw him. Um, so why am I so interested in Larry Crayford? Well, I'll tell you why I'm so interested in Larry Crayford. <sighs> Let's see. Now, before November 22nd, there was a lot of, quote, Oswald sightings, okay? You know, and they're numerous, okay? You know, like, uh, being seen at the Sport Drone Rifle Range, you know, being an asshole, you know, shooting at other people's targets, um, test driving a car at the Lincoln Mercury dealership, driving like an idiot, saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to come into some money soon, and then I'll come back and buy this car. Um, you know, what else? Oh, the Unemployment Commission, that Laura Kettering worked at the Texas Unemployment Commission, said she had two different people using Oswald identification come in uh, to her office. One was very unkempt looking and wore a black motorcycle jacket. Now, the interesting thing about that is uh, Larry Crayford had a motorcycle license, and he told the Warren Commission that he had bought a motorcycle, um, that he saved up some of his money and bought a motorcycle. So, hmm. Now, let's move forward to November 22nd, 1963, in the wee, 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 wee hours of the morning. And I'm talking like 2.30 in the morning. Okay, 10 hours before the assassination. We have an Oswald sighting by Mary Lawrence, who worked at the Lucas B&B restaurant. And she made a report at the end of January of 64 to the Dallas police that she had indeed seen, and she was positive that she had seen Lee Oswald in her restaurant uh, waiting for Jack Ruby. And then Jack Ruby came in the restaurant and then... Uh, this person got up and walked over and sat with Jack Ruby, where they sat there and 
drank coffee or ate or whatever for half an hour or so. And then they got up and left. And she said she was positive this was Lee Oswald, you know. And then later on in the interview, she's, she's like, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it couldn't have been. But but if, if Lee Oswald has a scar on his left cheek, then it's him. Okay. Which Oswald didn't, which we know. But we know somebody who did. Larry Crayford. Okay. So what in the hell was Larry Crayford doing meeting Jack Ruby at the Lucas B&B restaurant at 2 in the morning? Okay. Early, early, early in the morning on what uh, Friday, November twenty second. You know, uh, you know they work together in a bar, and uh, why they would feel the need to have to go out and meet in public at a kind of a nice restaurant. I mean, the Lucas B&B wasn't no Greasy Spoon dive bar. It wasn't no shitty um, cafe, you know, or diner. This was a restaurant, you know, with with uh, tablecloths and shit, you know. This was a pretty decent place, you know. Um, so, if they were both working at the Carousel Club, why was Jack Rui having to meet him there? And why did Larry Crayford beat him there? Why didn't Larry just meet Jack or drive with Jack to the restaurant, you know? Just, uh, you know, maybe Crayford was uh, doing something else, busy doing something else. and uh, Or maybe Jack wanted to meet with Larry uh, before the events of the next day, hmm, possibly, hmm, and uh, make sure they had all their ducks in a row. Um, then we have another quote Oswald sighting at 7.30 a.m. at the Top 10 Record Store. Yep, you heard me right. The Top 10 Record Store. The, the, uh, we all know the story about Tippett going there. Uh, but the owner, Dub Stark, also stated that he sold a ticket to Lee Oswald, whom, whom he identified after he was arrested. He said, that's the guy I sold a ticket to, 7.30 a.m. to the Dick Clark Variety Show. Early the morning of November 22nd, 1963. Well, shit, that couldn't have been Oswald, because Oswald was riding in with Frazier at 7.30 in the morning from Irving, Texas. That couldn't have been our Patsy Oswald. So who was this person? Maybe Dub Stark mistook him for Larry Crayford. Okay, because Jack Ruby did live close by couple blocks over so maybe Larry was just planning ahead for the evening who knows who knows then we have another sighting at about 9.30 a.m. which we know couldn't have been our Patsy Oswald because he's already at work in the Texas School Book Depository now this guy Fred Moore uh, stated that he sold this guy Lee Oswald uh, two beers and the reason he knows his name was Lee Oswald is because he actually checked his ID. He said the man gave him a Texas driver's license with the name Lee Oswald on it. And uh, he said he believed that the guy was born in 39 and that on the, on the 10th. Now, we know Oswald was born on the 17th, but he was born in October, which is the 10th month. So, 
that can be excused through simple mistaken recollection there. Um, but he said the man's name stood out because after the man left, after buying the two beers, he told his boss, hey, Lee Oswald, that's a nice Jewish name, you know. And uh, But then the guy came back in like a half an hour later, and he bought some Pico Brittle, and he started wandering the aisles of the store like he was nervous, the guy said. Uh, and that he didn't see him, he didn't see him drive in in a car or anything, and uh, gave the same basic description, you know, five eight, five nine, you know, one one forty, one fifty, dark hair, you know, the usual Oswald description. Now, we know that couldn't have been Oswald, all right, because Oswald doesn't drink. Okay, but this guy came in and bought two beers. Now, why in the hell? Would you buy two beers at 9.30 in the morning? Well, either you're a full-blown alcoholic, which Larry Crayford was not, or else Jack Ruby wouldn't have... He wouldn't have left Larry Crayford in charge of his bar and his sister's bar around all that alcohol and stuff. Um, or, unless you're maybe nervous about something and you kind of want to settle your nerves a little bit, maybe work up some some false courage, you know, you know how they, how they do it. Maybe you knew you had to do something here in a little while you maybe weren't too comfortable doing. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple beers and uh, grab a little something, some brittle, you know. I don't know if he had enough teeth to eat that brittle, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you got all these crazy Oswald sightings, you know. But what really, the ones that intrigue me are the ones from November 22nd. 1963 when we know our patsy is somewhere else okay now what could have been the motivation for creating or framing you know this oswald you know making making the name making the person lee oswald memorable making him unforgettable to certain people in the community you know, people would be like, damn, yeah, I saw that dude at the, at the rifle range acting all crazy. That's him. He had to kill the president. Yeah, I seen that, that guy came in to buy a car. He said he was coming in some money. Uh, he's the guy that shot the president. You know? Had this guy try to get a job. That's the guy that shot the president. Now, here's where things get interesting, my friends. And this is where your boy goes off into uh, speculation land a little bit. But my speculation is based on events that did occur that day. Now, my personal belief, and it's up for debate between who, 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 you know, who, who you choose to talk to, but I personally believe that Tippett was murdered at, at around 1.06 p.m. Okay, and I don't need to explain why. Just based on uh, eyewitness testimony of people that, who saw it, you know, looked at their watch, or looked at the clock, or knew what was on television at the time. Uh, it's based on what T.F. Bally told people. You know, he shows up on the scene, he sees a guy trying to work the radio, and he can't work it in the car, so he's like, "Oh, I know how to do that." So he gets in the car and he calls it in. Hey, an officer has been shot here. You know, he told him where he was at, and then he looked at his watch, and it was 1.10. Okay? So, my personal belief is that Oswald 
or shit, Tippett was killed at like 106. Okay, now if we go with that timeline, there's absolutely no way in hell that Oswald could have gotten out of the Texas School Book Depository, walked four or five blocks away and got on a bus, then came back in the direction of the School Book Depository and exited the bus, and then walked a couple more blocks to the Greyhound bus station where he got in a taxi cab, which then proceeded to take him seven blocks past his rooming house on Beckley, to which Oswald had to walk back seven blocks to his rooming house. Then he had to go in and change clothes. Then he presumably had to walk from his rooming house to Tempton Patton in order to kill Tippett in 36 minutes. That's just not possible. It's not possible. Not possible. I don't care who you are, Superman, whatever, it's not possible. Just couldn't happen that fast. I'm sorry. Um, now, why I believe if the man buying the beer and the brittle was Larry Crayford, okay, is important because the person that shot J.D. Tippett left their, left there or a wallet at the crime scene. Okay, and that wallet contained identification of Lee Oswald, which is important because hey, what better proof do you have that Lee Oswald was there and killed this cop? I mean, you got his wallet right there at the crime scene. Bang! You know he's guilty at least of that, right? You know, I mean that's that's open and shut case right there. Um. Then we have reports. Okay, at the Texas Theater, there was a guy that owned a hobby store a couple couple doors down, and he saw some act- police activity in the alley there that he shared with the Texas Theater. So he sat there and watched, and for years, decades, he thought he had seen the killer of the president brought out of the Texas Theater and stuck in a cop car and arrested. For years, he thought he had saw that, until he saw that famous picture of Oswald being let out the front of the Texas Theater by uh, Paul Bentley chomping on a cigar and Gerald Hill. And uh, he was like, well, well, what the hell? What the hell did I see then? You know, what the hell was that? You know, then we have two actual other police reports from officers on the scene at the Texas Theater stating that they arrested the suspect, Oswald, in the balcony of the Texas Theater. Now... I know some of these Dallas cops weren't too bright, okay? But I think that they would be able to tell the difference between a balcony and the floor of the theater. Don't you? Um, I mean, that's very distinct. That's just not a mistake, okay? That's not a mistake. That's not a mistake you make. Okay, so how do we explain this? Of somebody coming out the back of the Texas theater... That looked like Lee Oswald, who this guy thought was Lee Oswald. How do we explain away a couple police reports filed by officers saying that they'd arrested Oswald in the balcony at the theater? How do we reconcile that? Well, the only way I think to reconcile it is there was another person in the theater that looked like Oswald. 
you know, the Patsy Oswald was taken out of the front of the theater while the guy that was arrested in the balcony was taken out the back of the theater. I mean, that's a logical conclusion to me. It answers all the questions. You know, and I'm not saying there had to be some grand conspiracy in, in the Dallas Police Department. Okay, there doesn't, there doesn't have to be for this theory. Okay, it just needs to be a couple dirty cops. Okay, recruited by Jack Ruby. You know, you got to remember back then in the early 60s, you know, being a cop wasn't looked on as like this prestigious, you know, elite job. You know, it was just a job basically for these guys, like any other job. Like you're a barber, okay, you're a butcher, you're a cop. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you were this great protector and it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of fanfare and trumpets to go along with the job and it didn't pay that well, you know, for the risk these guys were taking. And a lot of them would take on second jobs as bouncers or bodyguards or um, security. Um, some of the even dirtier ones would be, uh, you know, more hip to accept money for other things. You know, such as, oh, oh, okay, you, you want to serve alcohol until uh, 2 a.m.? Okay, well, the law says you have to shut down at 1. But I'll tell you what, you give me 100 bucks a month, I'll turn the other way, and I'll make sure other cops leave you alone. We got a deal? Deal. You know, a lot of these cops found ways to work the system in their favor. Um, and who better than Jack Ruby to know who these dirty, the dirtiest of the dirty cops were? You know, the night of the assassination, Jack Ruby spent almost three hours talking to Harry Olson, okay, who, who was dating one of his dancers, uh, I think it was Kathy Kay. Um, for three hours, they sat in a car and talked. Now, what they talked about, I don't know, okay, but this was the night of the assassination. Okay. Now, after he talked to Harry Olson for three hours, okay, he goes and grabs George Senator. He calls Larry Crayford at the Carousel Club and says, "Look, grab the damn camera, come down here and meet me at the car." And uh, Crayford and Senator tell this story of Jack Ruby acting all crazy and shit, going out, taking pictures of billboards. You know, they said impeach Earl Warren. You know, they were paid for by the John Birch Society. And, uh, you know, Bernard Weissman and uh, comparing, you know, P.O. box numbers uh, between the flyer and the billboards and even going to the post office and taking pictures of the post office box. You know, just acting crazy, doing crazy stuff, you know. And then uh, then Crayford says that George Senator and Jack Ruby came back, dropped him off. And uh, but then he said... Uh, it was about 8 o'clock or so, and, and he went to feed the dogs. And he didn't have any dog food, so he called Jack Ruby up at like 8 in the morning and apparently woke him up after he'd just been asleep for like an hour or two. Well, he let Larry Crayford have it up one side, down the other, you know. So Crayford hung up the phone with him and was like, all right, you know, fuck this dude. I'm out. I don't have to put up with this shit. I'm out of here. So, he said he grabbed a couple bucks out of the cash register and hitchhiked, proceeded to hitchhike to Michigan, okay, at a very fast rate of speed. Um, 
Now that's the official story. Okay. So let's go back. Let's go back a little bit. And I will t tell you why I think Tippett or was killed by Larry Crayford. Imagine this scenario for a moment, if you will. Um, because Tippett was hunting Oswald. Okay, I firmly believe that in my heart of hearts from his actions. Okay, we have him sitting at the Glocko station at the, at the end of the Houston Street Viaduct waiting. People saw him in his car sitting in the parking lot waiting. And this was right after 1230, right after the president had been assassinated. Okay, he sat there and waited for a little while, appeared agitated and tore off, tore ass out of the parking lot. Okay, then we have him over across from the Texas theater in the top 10 record theater or the top 10 record store calling someone, you know, running in there, grabbing the phone, dialing it, not saying nothing, then hanging up, leaving without saying anything to anybody, which is very, you know, erratic, irrational behavior. When you just ran into somebody's business and used their phone, you can't say hi, bye, you know, screw you, nothing. Um, he was pulling people over, looking in the back of their cars, you know, not saying anything, you know, just acting real strange. Like, like he was hunting Oswald. Because here's what I believe, okay? I think that J.D. Tippett's job that day was to kill Oswald. And then he was going to be the hero. Because that morning, he told his kids before he left for work, no matter what happens today, just remember I love you. Which is very out of character for him to do. So I think he knew something was going to go down that day. I think he was hoping everything would go his way. But of course, there's always the possibility that everything goes to hell. Which is exactly what happened. Um, something happened to where... After the assassination, Oswald didn't go walking down Houston Street. Or he didn't go down riding, he didn't stay on the bus going down Houston Street. Something happened. Okay, and Tippett started to panic because, okay, this guy I'm supposed to kill, I don't see him. He didn't come this way. Okay, what the hell do I do next? Alright, maybe he knew eventually people would be going to the Texas Theater. I don't know. But he ends up at the Top Ten Record Store right across from the. Texas Theater, using the phone, calling somebody, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Then he starts panicking, just pulling people over at random, checking cars. Well, eventually, eventually he rolls up on somebody who fits this Oswald description, okay? So imagine this for a second, if you will, this my plausible scenario here, okay? Alright, he sees this guy walking down the street. He pulls over to the side of the curb and says, Hey, hey, buddy, come over here for a second. Oh, he says, Hey, uh, this is probably nothing, you know, nothing to worry about. He said, But, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for a guy uh, who, who vaguely fits your description here. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any identification on you. And Larry Craver says, Well, yeah. So he pulls out his wallet, hands it over to JD Tippett. Tippett opens it up and sees fucking Lee Oswald identification in this wallet. Okay? Now what if Crayford didn't know what Tippett was supposed to do and why would he? It's not part of his job. Things get compartmentalized, okay? 
people don't need to know everything. When they know everything, then things get screwy. Okay, so what if Crayford didn't know about Tippett and Tippett didn't know about Crayford? Maybe all Crayford was supposed to do is frame Oswald ahead of time, you know, for the for the murder. Just be visible, look like him, act like him, carry his ID, um, basically set him up. Or worse, I mean, shit, Crayford could have been in the sixth floor of the depository shooting for all I know. But I'm not, I can't even go there. You know, I just don't have enough evidence for that. But what does make sense, okay, say we, Crayford's walking down the street, Tippett pulls over and says, hey, you know, hey, come here, let me check your ID. You look, kind of look like this guy we're looking for. Well, Tippett opens the wallet and sees Lee Oswald identification, and he's like, oh, shit, I found this dude. And uh, maybe Crayford, you know, picked up on this guy's reaction, and Tippett started to get out of the car, started to pull his gun, and Crayford beat him to the punch. Pop, 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 pop. Because everybody said that Tippett was finished off with a round to the head like a professional hitman would do. Okay? Three to the chest and one to the head. Just like a professional hitman would do. Now, who do we know that was a hitman in San Francisco in the early 60s? Oh, Larry Crayford. Yeah, that's the guy. Now, we also have him running away, shaking his shells out of his gun, saying, poor dumb cop or poor damn cop, as he's running past somebody. Now, this guy's running. You know, they don't get a stationary look at this guy. But Tippett, or Crayford being no dummy, you know, probably realizes that a lot of people just saw what just happened. Okay, and they're going to be given a description of him to the police. So the first thing he does is ditches his jacket, okay, under a car at a Texaco station. Now, some people say they saw this guy dip into the Abundant Life Church, which is close by there. Maybe he did for a second and then dip back out. Maybe he did to use the phone to call and be like, oh shit, I just, I just, I just killed a damn cop. I had to. He saw, my, he saw my license. He thought I was Lee Oswald. I had to kill him or he was going to shoot me. You know, and the guy told him, all right, don't worry, just get to the Texas theater and go to the balcony. Maybe Lee Oswald has instructions to get to the Texas theater and sit on the floor somewhere. Because Oswald was moving, sitting next to different people like he was looking for somebody. Um, Or something under his seat. Because I still think at this point, maybe Oswald thought he was, thought he was some kind of a secret agent, you know. Um... But anyway, back to Crayford, okay? So he, he sheds his jacket. All he's got on is a white t-shirt. And gee, somebody else does too. So, <laughs> that's my plausible scenario, okay? Crayford makes his way to the Texas theater, goes up the balcony without paying. Oswald had arrived earlier, paid, and went and sat on the floor. Now, Crayford would have had eyes on this guy as the police came in and arrested him. And, you know, the two cops that arrested Crayford in the, in the balcony and took him out the back door. You know, probably to drive him away and then let him out somewhere and 
you know, do their job, okay? Because they had their patsy, they had their killer, they don't need this other guy anymore. That's just my theory, okay? It might be totally wrong, it might be totally off base, but that's what I think. I think Jack Ruby's job, okay, was to set Oswald up as the patsy using someone who looked like him, someone who had his identification, okay, and, you know, to make this guy memorable. And that's at the, at the best, at the worst, you know, at the worst, Crayford was an assassin. At the very worst. Okay? But, at best, it was at least to, you know, make Lee Oswald look capable of shoot of being the guy that shot the president. Um, you know, people don't walk around with two wallets. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, and we know there was another wallet as the typical crime scene found. Because it's in the news footage. Okay? And we know when Lee Oswald was arrested, he had a, he had a wallet in his pocket with his identification in it. Because they took it from him on the way to the police station. So, you know, I could see if, if one wallet had Lee Oswald identification and the other wallet had Heidel identification in it. But that's not the case. They both had Lee Oswald IDs. And... People just don't carry two wallets. Now, I think Tippett had the wallet in his hand looking at the ID when he got out of the car and realized what he had to do or what about was to go down and he drew his weapon because uh, T.F. Bowley states that he stayed there until the ambulance people arrived and he helped put Tippett up onto the stretcher. And that when they lifted Tippett up, he was laying on his gun. It was not in his holster. Okay, and then his wallet was a couple feet away, like it had fell out of Tippett's dead hand. And Larry Crayford, being in a hurry, didn't bother to stop and pick it up because, hey, it wasn't his wallet. You know what I'm saying? It was Lee Oswald's wallet. So why bother? Okay, it's not like it had his his stuff in it. So that's my theory. Now maybe I have it wrong. Maybe I have it right. But I would appreciate feedback from anyone, anybody out there who's got anything uh, to add or they want to point out something, a problem with it that they have. I'd like to know about it. Um, because I tell you, there's a lot of aspects of this case that I, that before I didn't really look into too deeply because it was just one of those murky, muddy, swampy lakes that just have no redeeming qualities because it's so hard to figure out exactly what happened like the Tippett murder like Oswald in Mexico like you know what the hell Jack Jack who the hell Jack Ruby working working for what's his interest you know what's his interest um you know what kind of a lucrative offer could Jack Ruby have given to Larry Crayford to have him stay around and take on all this responsibility when before he'd be gone in a week you know, he wasn't a person that, that liked responsibility. You know, he, he liked working, you know, at the carnival. You know, pushing the on switch and the off switch for a ride. You know, that was about the extent of what he wanted to be in charge of. Um, 
but now all of a sudden, you know, he's running the club and, and doing all this important stuff for Jack Ruby. All in the span of a month of knowing him. So, you know, here we have a self-professed crack shot from the Army. A former hitman from San Francisco. A drifter with no real place to call home. Very bad people person. Kind of an asshole. Very much out for one person and one person only. And that was Larry Crayford. And screw everybody else. Um, You know, and it's funny because... The HSCA claimed they couldn't find this guy for their investigation. And the reason why they couldn't find him is because after the Jack Ruby trial, he had changed his name back from C-R-A-F-A-R-D back to C-R-A-F-O-R-D. Still Curtis Laverne, okay? But uh, he had changed that one letter back. And they couldn't find him. They couldn't find him. And no other researcher, I tell you, other than Joachim Jostin. And Jostin was on to Larry Crayford early, boy. I'm talking early. Like, he put a book out in 64, the spring of 64, before the Warren Commission report had even come out. All about how Larry Crayford was involved and, and was an assassin and all this stuff. And uh, the guy had to have sources in the DPD. He had to have sources in the FBI. Because um, he knew a lot of stuff. I mean, he, he even knew about Carol Jarnigan's testimony. You know, seeing Oswald and Ruby together in the Carousel Club in early October. Talking about killing Connolly. Um, just craziness. So... Anyway, hopefully I gave you something to think about today. I know it's a lot to think about. I know it's a lot to take in. I know it goes against conventional thinking. I know it goes against the official story. Okay? But, like I've said before, there comes a point in time where we got to take what we know and try to figure out what in the hell happened with it. Okay? You know, my buddy Dust, SR Dusty Road, he took a look at the Tibbet murder and he came with a totally different conclusion than me. Okay, he thinks Harry Olsen was involved in the Tibbet murder. You know, I mean, people can look at this stuff from totally different angles and come up with two totally different things. And, you know, I love Dusty. I think he's a great researcher. And I'm not knocking his conclusion. He could very well be right. Okay? But I got this other feeling. You know, because... Jack Ruby killed Lee Oswald in cold blood in the middle of a sea of cops in front of the cameras of the world when he was never known to have to kill anybody before you know like I said like I've said before on this show it takes a lot okay to kill a man to take another man's life especially when that other man has a family he has children um you know, you got to be willing to throw your life away to take someone else's life, and that takes severe motivation. Okay, and loving Jack and Kit, you know, loving Jackie Kennedy and not wanting to have to have her come back for a trial is the worst reason I've ever heard in my life. 
You know, and every, everybody who always met Jack Ruby said, oh, he was nice, he was sweet, oh, but he had a temper, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. Jack Ruby had, you know, ties to Cuba. He was a gun runner. He had financial interest all over Dallas. All over Dallas. In the bars and the underground scene there. The shady, seedier parts of Dallas. He had financial interest all over the place. He owed a lot of people a lot of money. You know, but, but his club was bringing in a lot of money every night. I mean, granted, he had to pay his people, you know, but it wasn't like he wasn't making a profit. Um, he should have been doing much, much better than he was. Um, so then you come into the question of motivation. Why would, you know, why would Jack Ruby uh, assume this, this job of setting up this man to take the fall for the assassination of a president? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know what the motivation was. But Jack Ruby, when he was talking to Earl Warren, he said, he said, look, you get me the hell out of Dallas, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Take me to Washington with you. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Now, if he had thought that Lyndon Johnson or the CIA or the FBI or any of them people had a part in all this, why would he want to go to Washington? which is where LBJ was, where the CIA and the FBI is. Why would he so desperately want to get out of Dallas? Why was he running around in the wee hours of the morning taking pictures of John Birch Society stuff? Okay, maybe he was scared to stay in Dallas because that is where the John Birch Society was. That's where the Minuteman was. That's where the extreme right wing of the nation was at the time. Okay, it festered in these rich, super rich, ultra rich oil men. It festered in these extreme right wing anti communist um, believers. And they were, most of them, the swinging dicks anyway, were in Dallas. So, <laughs> maybe that's why Jack Ruby wanted to get the hell out of Dallas. I don't know. But anyway, there is a lot for you to think on today, this week. Uh, once again, I apologize for the show not coming out on time. Um, but I just wanted to set the record straight on a couple of things and not pass along bad information to you. Uh, but yeah, that's it this week, people. Stay tuned to TLGpodcast.com for more information. Follow me on Twitter, at TLG underscore podcast. Follow me on Tumblr at the Lone Gummin Podcast. Um, I'm everywhere, people. I'm on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, where else? Spreaker, um, TuneIn Radio. I'm on all your favorite podcatching places like G Potter, Aquapod, AntennaPod, Potter, Pothead. I don't know. I'm everywhere, baby. Blueberry. I'm everywhere. Thank you for tuning in the show this week. Tune in next week. For episode number 68, my boy Mr. Carmine Savastano will be coming back to the show, I hope, if we can make it work technologically. Until next time, people, this some bitches in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears. This is your boy Rob Clark thanking you for tuning in to the Lone Gummin Podcast. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.